Hey everyone, welcome to Expansion Cast. Expansion Cast is a magical podcast I created so people could find simple or unconventional solutions to expand their personal awareness and experience. This podcast is dedicated towards revealing people's divine truth and how that divine truth works its way out into the world one by one, helping liberate each of us on our personal path to freedom. If you love this podcast, please give us a rating and share. I'd like to welcome Nicole Hartley Bradford to Expansion Cast. Nicole's a connection activist, a founder of Awakening the Village, and a recent TEDx survivor. <laughs> oh, I like what you said, a connection activist. That's, yeah, I like that a lot. Thanks. <laughs> So I found it very interesting that you uh, had a post today about uh, all the emotions that you've kind of going through after doing the TEDx and seeing yourself talk live. And uh, one one of the things that stood out for me was your inner critic. And Mm. I know that from my own experience doing some live work, when we push through some of those fears of speaking publicly and being seen, we tend to uh, illuminate some of the things that we self-impose without actually realizing it, like self-judgments. Mm. Yeah. Where are you there with that? Yeah, it's... I, I mean what you said made me think of how like back in June when I, when I actually gave the talk and it was recorded um, on that day, uh, I felt, I felt so much like leading up to it, getting ready. I had been really like mentoring and coaching myself to be present and to just trust that what I had in me was what needed to come out Um, and that I had one in me, I had all that was in me was what I wanted to say. And when the actual talk happened, um, I just, I felt fine. I felt like I'd done what I'd set out to do and it was, it was over and it was irretrievable and I was moving forward. And then over the months that I've been waiting for it to come out, I've been, you know, like, you know, anticipating that, you know, it would, it would uh, have an effect. Um, But I had no idea the effect that it would have. And when I heard that it had been, that had been posted, I was super excited. And then I sat down to watch it. And I was like, Oh, God, like, and it all hit me at once. And I watched myself. And of course, all I saw was the the things that I that I couldn't feel so proud of and I started to feel really embarrassed and really regretful and I started like telling myself all those things that I don't know parents and teachers tell kids that that don't serve us at all like you should have known better you could have done better and I just I know in my mind and I know and even in my heart that those things aren't true but my solar plexus still buys into that I should have known better, I should have done better. Even though I, yeah, in my head, I know that I, I was doing my absolute best with what I had at the time and with, with what I could do and I could know at the time. And yet 
it just, it's like, I can, I can feel it burn. Um, and then, yeah, that part of my mind that's just nattering away at me is, uh, oh, was, was really had me last night. Um, really had me. And I, I posted from that place of being just my kind of personal policy of open honesty is just, I needed to express and I needed to reach out and that's how I decided to do it for the time being and trusting that 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 open honesty and vulnerability is has served me in the past even though it's not really what I'm conditioned to do. I watched the uh, I watched the TEDx talk this morning and um, it was a short one. I was kind of expecting the half an hour, 45 minute talk. But it was a short one, and the talk was beautiful. Your how you pronounced everything was amazing. The spaces you took, the time you took to let the communication sink in was awesome, and it really felt like you were in your power. The one thing I missed was the vulnerability story. Mm. How you got here? Why? Why are you here? Why are you? a connection activist yeah i mean i suppose i did mention about the day that i almost took my own life mm -hmm. um i didn't go into that very very deeply um partly because the the point of the talk and the invitation that i'd been given was to talk about intentional engagement so i, I kind of moved from having been in a really vulnerable and hopeless place to now being in a strong place and how did I make that make that shift and I didn't get too much into how I become so hopeless and vulnerable uh, very much at all and and partly I think some of that has to do with there was a very relational like um, where I got to back then had was based on relationships and I still haven't I don't think really reconciled with the people who who I with whom I had those relationships so I don't think I was trusting myself to not come across as blaming or shaming or holding others responsible um, because I don't hold others responsible I don't well that might not be completely accurate I don't blame them. I believe that they were all doing the best they could with what they had to. I think I do still hold them responsible for their part. And we as individuals haven't got to that part yet. Um, I haven't reconciled with those people. And to talk more about that might have been too, might have been premature, I think. So, yeah, I went ahead to the part where where the the point of of the night, and it, it was a shorter TEDx because it was given in the context of um, three short talks in a salon style event, mm. followed by followed by like an hour and a half of engagement with the attendees. So that was a big part of the night, and it made for the smaller style talk. So in a short, a uh, couple sentences. What does what does intentional engagement actually mean? To me, it means 
talking to people without filters, openly, honest, honestly, with a purpose too. Um, and the purpose that night was to practice and provide people tools and examples of intentional engagement. Can we have an example now? Sure. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the other speakers that night is this amazing man called Garrett Smith, and um, he's the indigenous man who set up the Mokinsis camp outside City Hall, uh, or not City Hall, um, outside the courthouse in Calgary a couple of years ago, teepees and a trapper's tent. And initially, the purpose of the camp was to to give a space for conversations to be had around the this tragic reality of the missing and um, murdered Indigenous women in, Cal in, in Canada. And um, through his experiences engaging with people around that intention, he learned and grew and started to um, have experiences that helped him to engage with people who had approached him in a, an, with an adversarial kind of edge and to, to um, engage with them in a way that brought them round to more of a sense that, that they're just all human and we all have our story and we all have our pain and there's a lot of misunderstanding when we are too like revved up ourselves to really hear or get curious about other people's stories. And he told an amazing story about one particular encounter that he'd had that I hope people will search his TEDx talk to Garrett Smith and hear about that example. So part of me is like, do we really need to go into all the old pain? Like, you know, why discuss it? Why even talk about it? Can't we just forget it? <laughs> Can't we just have fun and move on? I, I mean, I guess if we can, we can. And go ahead if you can. I, I, I tried that for a long time. Tried to just, like, put it behind me and pretend that there was no pressure kind of coming at me. I guess how we think of it now is that that pain, it, it lived in my body. And I couldn't, I couldn't pretend it wasn't there. My nervous system just kept doing its thing to, to, to kind of um, try to start what I think of as healing mechanisms in me to, to grieve and shake and sound and readjust my physiology to a healthier state. And uh, my behavior just kept getting me into situations where I needed to not necessarily go back and talk about it, but I needed to, I needed to feel the feelings that hadn't had a chance to be felt long ago. I needed to learn how to hold space for myself and be able to process those emotions and have them clear out of me in a way so that I could be free of them. And I described that in the talk, that layering of past like small T trauma and bigger T traumas that I'd experienced that hadn't been thoroughly processed at the time. So after you process these feelings, do they disappear forever? I think that it can look like they don't because all of those traumas, they happened in layers. Even the big T trauma, the big T trauma event might have happened, but then often because of the big T trauma, like 
For example, I lost my dad when I was 23 years old. And there were a lot of, that was a, a big T trauma, the loss of a parent through like premature death. But before his death, there were all the small traumas of not being able to talk about it while he was sick, not being able to really process that he was in hospital and not available as, as, a, as a present father to watch him deteriorate, like all these little things that built up over time and didn't get, didn't get discussed, didn't get grieved. And then when he died, there were, again, a whole new wave of like small T traumas that had to do with my family's inability to connect and communicate well and grieve and you know then then every kind of event that happened that was difficult after that was compounded by the loss of my dad and the loss of this person in my life with whom i used to talk he was my confidant he was my closest family member he was my support and so there's like there was this mountain of of layered traumas that had been not reconciled. And there I was, you know, as an older person with four children, three of whom had never met him, had never known him, had never directly received his love in an isolated situation where I was really struggling without family, without close support. And yeah, it, it, like I say in the talk, I just, I ran out of space. How's your inner critic today? I... I honestly, I can feel pretty proud because the way I see it is that even though I have this huge inner critic, I also have this huge opportunist kind of part of my nature. And I have this huge, like, badass, brave part of my nature. And the, between the opportunist and the brave, they've kind of said to the critic, okay, give it to us. You tell us everything show us all the holes you see go ahead and they've listened and we we ended up kind of we talking about myself is these divided parts but i think that they've come together those three parts and they've come together and they've they've said you know what here's an opportunity to bravely be open about the holes i see about the mistakes if you can call them that that i made and heal from heal the hurt in there that's still residually present and to learn and grow and and put put into use um the material the tools that i that i the, the tools i talk about uh and touch on in the in the talk and i did that this morning i took out the love smart cards which is the box i hold up at one point my inner critic's like, oh my gosh, you didn't describe that well at all. You didn't name the tool even. You didn't talk about the person who had given you permission just that morning to, to yes, to put them in, to put them in the talk. And, and uh, you know, I, my inner critic was telling me, you didn't do her service. You didn't do the watcher's service. How are they going to know? And I'm like, my inner opportunist and my badass is going, well, there's no time like the present tell people about that fill in that hole give it even more clout because of the you know people's maybe interest will be piqued by whoa, 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 wait what was that box she held up she says that it helped her like heal and grow and learn uh more about that please and hopefully that 
might make them Google or inquire and certainly makes it be emphasize it more here. So that's, that's how I'm handling my inner critic. Sweet. So what are you have? Like, I guess now's a great opportunity to talk about the love smart cards. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about them. Why? I think I've, uh, I went to a short class with them at a festival, but I haven't really had a whole lot to do with them. Mm. And there's probably a lot of listeners out there that have no idea what we're even talking about. Yeah. And yeah, it's they're pretty simple, really. It's one of those things where simplicity is the genius of it. Um, how I like to how I like to tell the stories about you remember when you were like little and maybe you watched Sesame Street and there was like the songs, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten for counting and and um, and then ABC songs, and then some of the so the spelling songs, and maybe then you went to school, and maybe some of your teachers had flashcards, right, for words and, and math, and and um, and on the emotional literacy side of things, there was like when you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, and when you're sad and you know it, cry boohoo, and when you're angry and you know it, stomp your feet which I hear actually these days, they're leaving out the sad and the angry parts. And they're just, when you're happy, when you're glad, shout hooray. And they're, they're like, no, we don't want to talk about negative emotions. Um, but with when it, when it came to language and literacy um, and spelling and reading and math, and like then you progressed right past the flashcards into writing and and algebra and geometry and um, essays and theses and all kinds of advancement when it came to numeric and linguistic literacy but when it came to emotional literacy after you're happy and you know clap your hands there was like nothing we were just like go out in the playground and fend for yourself and and now we have mental health crises and addiction crises going on give me a yeah let's talk about smart cards and kind of what they look like and what they feel like you know what what to expect when a person picks up a deck yeah so the the deck itself has four parts and they're the cards are color-coded so you can tell them apart easily each word each card has a word on it and in the gray there's a gray deck and each of the cards in the gray deck has a word that is the name of a feeling or an emotion that is um, unpleasant, that comes, that is associated with needs, longings, values, and desires that are unmet. Then there's a blue deck, and on the blue cards, there are words that are describe the feelings that are associated with needs, longings, values, and desires that are met. And then there's a green deck, of all the universal needs, longings, values, and desires. And the premise is that when our needs, longings, values, and desires are met, we get the pleasant feelings. Like when you know we need connection and we get connection, we feel joy, we feel safe, we feel you know pleased, we feel happy. And that when we need connection and we don't get it, and we can feel lonely and disappointed and sad, maybe even angry. And then the fourth deck is a pink deck. And those cards have words on it that are associated with character strengths, 
So the character strengths are the parts of ourselves that we can draw from in order to get more of our needs, longings, values, and desires met more of the time so that we can have more of the pleasant feelings. And it moves the language too away from the idea of feeling bad or feeling good, um, takes it out of like negative positive dichotomy into all feelings are information that tell us that either our needs are being met or they're not. And then we can get quicker to a place of wondering how we can make sure that we're getting our needs met so that we can have the more pleasant feelings more of the time. And how you use the cards is from a place, especially of upset, I can go through all the gray cards and, and like identify the feelings I'm having and give myself empathy. Say, yeah, this, this is a feeling I'm having. I acknowledge it and I give it space. And maybe that space means that it can move. And if those feelings are anger and sadness, and I'm really giving myself a chance to feel those and acknowledge them, um, I might cry, I might like start to growl or like move my body in ways that helps process those emotions on a kind of like biological molecular level until they're just spent. They're, they're been expressed, they're gone, they're out of me. And what I found is that when I allow myself to do that, I, yeah, I gain all this space and in that space, all kinds of new ideas come to me, all kinds of new understandings of what might have happened. I might have been in my story about why I got upset in the first place. I might say things like, oh, you know, that person disrespected me. But disrespect isn't a feeling. Um, anger is a feeling and sadness is a feeling. So if I'm able to say, oh, I, when that person did the things they did, which were more of a description of, of like, factual things that happened, I felt angry and sad because my need for respect wasn't being met. And when I know that my need for respect is being met and I'm respecting myself by giving myself the time to work through all this, I'm taking my focus off the other person, understanding that they might have done and said whatever they did and said uh, from, a, from their own place of like confusion or hurt or, or unmet needs. And it might have made it really hard for them to even know what I might need, let alone provide that for me. So it's this way of getting clarity and understanding and giving oneself space and also gaining, gaining understanding and clarity around other people and how they might be um, coming up with the behaviors and, or lack of behavior that they've been engaged in. So can you briefly um, describe the difference between an, an emotion and a feeling? I can describe the difference for me. Um, for me, a feeling is a, is a kind of sensation in my, in my emotional body. And an emotion is when that feeling is moving. So it's kind of the difference between I might feel sad, I might have sadness as a feeling, but when, when sadness is being an emotion, it's moving and it's grief. So that's the difference for me is that motion part. So it sounds like when it's a feeling, it's like something that's stuck. Yeah, then, or just hasn't kind of got to the movement part yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for whatever reason. And I kind of think, 
that's, you know, that's part of how humans maybe work is that not every moment of every day is a good time to be letting emotions out of us. And so I, I get the idea that we're built with this, with this mechanism that holds it in until we are in a place that's, that's like conducive to emotional expression. Because being open like that is a pretty vulnerable state, crying and, and, and uh, yeah, emoting. You know, you, you can't really be multitasking. You can't, I just imagine like humans back in, in earlier times when there were more kind of like the types of threats that uh, if, if like a saber-toothed tiger attacked the village and you watched your, you know, your beloved person get, mauled and like you didn't have time to stop and grieve right there you needed to get away from the danger you need to get yourself safe and i get the idea that maybe in indigenous cultures once they got themselves safe and confirmed that they were truly safe they did do grieving and mourning in a really active way with the drumming and the wailing sounds of indigenous um songs and and rituals i i see so much that that might have been this opportunity to clear out the emotions in order to be able to like move on with life. Well, I think that can be part of it too, but I think also part of it is that we're such a young country <clears throat> talking about North America. And when we look at uh, the environment of business and um, corporations, I really don't believe that they want emotion and they didn't want emotion. And so I think for a long time, the priority in schools, and maybe it still is a priority, is to push away emotion so that when people come up in society, they're not uh, reactive, you know, and they kind of fall into a very predicted pattern of 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. habits. Yeah, yeah, and and what I see in that from this place of like illumination that I've got for myself as a person who broke out of that and for whom releasing and expressing emotion was such a big part of that, I, I see like Western culture and colonizers and settlers as having arrived here shut down and imposing that on, on you know, I, I can't help but wonder if, whether consciously or not, and I'm doubting that it was fully conscious, that the missionaries and the settlers who suppressed indigenous culture, a big part of that could well have been that they were suppressing the expression of emotion. Just like, you can't do that. You can't sing your songs. You can't pray your prayers that, that like lubricate this grieving process you each want you to sit down and shut up like we've had to do for generations and generations and generations. And, and to me, that's colonization. That's, that's all of the conditioning. And, and it doesn't start in school. A lot of the time it starts at home. You know, it's like, it's like, I'll give you something to cry about, or you don't really have, that's not a good reason to be crying or you, you don't, you never knew you had it so good. This hurts me more than it hurts you. All those kinds of Languaging me may or may not have got um, specifics, but I, I know that I've uncovered a lot of things that, that my inner critic says to me to suppress my emotions. 
and try to convince me that they aren't valid and that my even my needs aren't valid. My longings aren't valid. And, and has me switch out values for other values because they're the values of a culture that, you're right, doesn't have room for emotion. And I can't help but wonder if that means that, you know, we as the, as a collective ran out of space from all the trauma that didn't get a chance to be expressed. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I still have a bit of a issue with the needs part, though, because mm -hmm. I really find that... Um, once we move into a place where we can, you know, purge the emotion, let it feel, let it have its life, let it move on. You know, once all these emotions, these built up old, you know, deep seated emotions that are stuck and they finally get their way out. And then we become clear and we can move into our wild beingness. There really is no need anymore. I, I don't find needs. What I find is inspiration you know and I, like i don't need anything from anybody else outside of myself anymore you know what i think that you've hit on something so like poignant which is that the whole point of like being a dependent child and growing up in the context of families and teachers and coaches and and grown-ups is so that we would become self-sufficient in terms of needs that we'd be we'd be the ones who looked after our own needs and i think that what we do is we kind of like circumvent our own power or or the individual's own power by denying them the need to grieve and the need to express authentically and so as grown-ups we end up kind of like codependent and we believe that we can't, you know, we can't rock the boat at our job. We can't challenge the nine to five paradigm. We will we'll just, we'll, we'll be in poverty and we'll starve and we'll die. You know, we have to be responsible. And, and yet I have this new twist on it where maybe it's more responsible for us to own our grief and own our pent up feelings and, and take our anxiety and our stress as indicators that we have grieving to do. So that we can get to that place where, yeah, I, I don't need anything. I've, I can move on to what am I longing for? What are my desires? What are my values? And am I, am I living by them on a day-to-day -day basis? And another thing I think that that's often goes unnoticed is that um, not only were my uh, so-called negative or unpleasant feelings denied expression, but so often were my expressions of joy and celebration of, of being pleased with myself and proud of myself. I can remember so many times where I was told, oh, you think you're so great or, oh, be humble with that or don't show off, you know? And it was almost like all of this emotional expression isn't just about the, the sadness and the anger. It's, it's also about the, the jubilation that a human can feel when they when they know that they have a gift to give to the world and that they're giving it and it's having a, a beneficial impact and 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 I'm just alive and enjoying the beautiful sunshine like oh my gosh being alive is extraordinary and unbelievable when I really like have room in me to acknowledge and appreciate 
So, which brings a question to my mind is, what does your wild self look like? Uh, like, like look like from the outside or? You know, yeah, maybe some of that, but more about, I mean, how does your, your wild self, your wild freedom, how does it flow out? You know, you know, what's your, mm. you know, sometimes I, I, I'm in the process of moving into wild freedom, wild self, you know, I've kind of been here for a bit now. Mm-hmm. And I still find roadblocks and I still yeah. find self judgments and places where I stop myself from exploring and, and being in my freedom. Mm-hmm. What does that mm-hmm. look like for you? Uh, yeah. Like what does wild even mean? Right. Mm-hmm. I, I guess to me, it means that, that I'm really spontaneously like moving from my, my deep nature. Um, for me, that looks often like, yeah, I mean, if I have something to say, I say it, uh, and and I trust, and I I'm ready for the consequences, whatever they are. Um, I'm more often expressive without words too, just in the way my body moves and and the sounds come out of my throat. Um, I think you know I have this other image of what's hap- what's been happening with me as kind of my like my kind of non-formed self like my my spirit my soul um through the process of of grieving and, and getting these barriers out of the way in myself it's like my soul or my spirit descends ever more deeply into my physiology so that so that now it's it's um i'm walking my talk you know we have that expression about oh they don't walk their talk and and I think that's what's happening when my spirits just got into my brain and my mind and my thoughts and maybe some of my words but when it comes to my heart and my hands and my legs and my feet I'm not embodied my my spirit my soul aren't embodied in my in my meat suit and that when they are which is maybe what I'm kind of thinking of as this wildness this kind of holy wildness too, like a divine wildness, not just a feral kind of like, like dog eats dog kind of wildness. It's, it's the noble dog or the noble animal, um, where, where expression and generosity and, um, sensuality and even sexuality and co-creativity are, are activated and, we're not like condition. These conditioned blocks have been uh, learned from, and and maybe ones that we didn't get, we've come to recognize those those too. And I think that's one of the barriers of Western culture. Again, is this this um, all of our so many of our points of privilege and advantage just aren't appreciated. And it took me a long time to start really going, oh my gosh, I am a gifted person who has a lot to offer the world because I was so bound up in I am a victim and I'm damaged and I'm hurting and my power is leaking away and I, I, I can't use it. I can't even use my own life force as a resource to create abundance. Does that answer your question? <clears throat> it's such it, a big thing. It does. It is a huge thing. So, what's what's the most recent uh, event you've had, or 
tied into that was limiting your ability to be in this wild freedom? It, it was it was right just last night, you know, when I watched for the first time my TEDx talk. Mm. And I saw all the reasons that I should be ashamed of it, that so I should withhold it from the world. Yeah, what were they? Um, they were... I noticed that like when I was talking, I was like licking my lips a lot and, and kind of doing weird looking things with my mouth. And and I know like other people who who might have already watched it are like, oh, I didn't notice that. It might have been totally lost on them. But of course, to me, to me as this person who's like made a life out of pleasing others and doing everything perfectly in order to be safe and to have belonging, like I pick on every little thing. Um, I also, what, what happened and, and some of this is just accepting too, that there are some good reasons for the mistakes I saw in myself. I had never practiced with a clock except to practice my talk and then look at the time. Oh yeah, that's the, that fell within my time limit. But during the actual talk, one of the TEDx, um, the staff guys, like the volunteers held up a clock at the halfway point. And my brain just didn't compute that I was on track. It, it just saw the number and I was like, oh, hurry. Oh my gosh, I got to get in before the deadline. And, and this is a conditioned thing from way back. I remember being hurried and hurried and hurried and hurried as a kid, never on time, you know, and always being punished and shamed for, for not making it on time. So what that did to me is it just, I, my lost presence and my brain started glitching and I started skipping parts and, and not following the, the path that I've worn for myself through like repetitions of, of this talk. And I'd, I'd chosen intentionally not to script myself. I wanted to leave plenty of room for improv kind of like on the fly so that I could really be present and it, in a way, it kind of backfired because when I did get that glitch around the clock, I just, I, I just started lurching and bumping, and and I see all that when I'm watching last night. I'm just like, oh my god, I forgot to say this, I forgot to mention this, I forgot to do this, I forgot. I just ran through like um, when I described my crapping big process, uh, like I'm sure I just lost so many people and confused people. I, I, I have no idea how it lands because I can't not, I can't be watching it without knowing how it goes. So I, I don't know how it'll come across to new people. Oh yeah. Everything from like, Oh, my scarf is all wonky. Oh <laughs> 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 yeah. So you were describing something you viewed as not perfect. Yeah. And you're yeah. expecting yourself to be this uh, vision of perfection. Uh, no, I, this is the crazy paradox of it is that I knew already that it was imperfect and I had become okay with that. <laughs> yeah. So this is what I was up against is like, like all the grief from all the fear of what other people are going to think. Because for so long, that's just controlled me. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. You know, I remember when, uh, Quite a few years ago after we had met, you came to my house and we did a session. Mm -hmm. Or you conducted a session, I should say. 
and that session was basically sitting and just being present with me while I talked about all the dark and the sinister things I've done or has been done to me and different things that I just haven't come to grips with. You remember that moment? I do, yeah. And I remember after that, I was like, a lot of that stuff I had never said to anybody. And it just circled inside me or sat somewhere, you know. And I found myself in a huge process the days after. Mm. Um, and I still can't call that beautiful. But <laughs> it, was, it was definitely a good experience of, of, of uh, awakening uh, my, or opening my attention to something that I was failing to acknowledge. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of the work I do now is like pushing edges, right? And that was a big mm -hmm. edge for me. And, and uh, all my edges before were, you know, kind of external. And that one probably was the biggest internal edge I pushed. Mm -hmm. And yeah. since then, you know, doing surrender and all sorts of stuff, I've been... I push a lot of edges and, you know, it's interesting that you, you talk about the internal critic and that internal critic was like just gigantic for me. Yeah. Um, I did a, I did a poetry talk last week and it was on camera. That was the first time I was ever on camera and I actually watched it yesterday. Huh. And so kind of like, Kind of much like you. Yeah, a little parallel there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I watched it and I was like, I was like, oh, this is pretty good actually. Maybe I'll get into poetry instead of public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> or, or like I've, I've never watched myself public speak in any kind of way. Yeah. And people are always, you know, would always tell me, yeah, you're really good. You do really well. Yeah. And I remember the first time like, oh, you what are you just saying that? You're just patting somebody on the back. And I'd always watch and maybe judge somebody else as they're doing their speech and see see if anybody told them they were doing good, even if they weren't. Yeah. You know. Yeah, this brings me to this brings me to this other kind of like layer of it. Yesterday was Halloween, right? Yeah. And my costume, you couldn't tell what I was. And that was the point. Because what I wanted people to do was say, What are you supposed to be? And then I'd say I'm a formerly gifted child, and I am a formerly gifted child. <laughs> I was designated gifted after testing, like late in my teens, kind of mid-teens. Um, but I didn't get people challenging me because in the context of the education system, if you're doing well academically, they leave you alone. And I wasn't doing well in lots of other ways, like relationally and emotionally I was often having I mean I went to school to see friends and I just you know I had lots of conflicts and and none of them got really well tended to but and and this kind of set me up to be kind of how you describe like to be very skeptical of anyone who was like oh that's great because that's what I got during my formative years you're fine you're great you're doing great without the honesty of like actually I noticed this little thing that you could work on how are you going to work on it? Mentoring, coaching. Um, it wasn't that I wasn't coachable. It's that I didn't get coaching in the areas where I needed it. 
And so I became a person who's very skeptical of people's kind of surface veneer, like, oh, no, it's great. You did fine. You look awesome. You're a great speaker. You're so articulate. And I'm like, yeah, but there's more. There's more. I, I could go further. I could I could go deeper. I, I could have a more beneficial impact. And uh, I think that's what happened with me last night is is I kind of saw how it limited my own potential for gifting benefit to the wider world from my lived experience. Yeah, and some of the some of what you were saying um, brings me back to thinking about the self-destructive mode that we can go into too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, to shut down, shut up and be grateful for what you have. <laughs> <laughs> It's good enough. <laughs> well, yeah, make yourself make yourself small and invisible, and yeah, yeah, yeah. The opposite of wild, right? Tamed, yeah. domesticated, boxed. Yeah, yeah. Where that's a terrible thing. I agree. I don't want it for anybody. No, just be in the wild, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it comes down a lot of the time to trusting our wild natures and our human natures. You know, trusting kids that if they're having a tantrum, you just, you got to let him have it out, you know. Yeah, stop them from hitting their brother. But the anger has got, got something to it. You know, what is that? The sadness has something to it. We're losing things constantly. And and when we're often allowed not allowed to grieve or mourn them. And I just think that that's so, such disservice. Yeah, it's funny, and I noticed how you put a limit on on the uh, on the boys, like stop them from hitting your brother. I don't know if that's even <laughs> even appropriate. I mean, if the boys are going to start fighting, here, go ahead. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I totally. Yeah, I did put that on. That's my conditioning talking, right? Yeah. No hitting allowed. No hitting, no hitting, no hitting. Yeah. Oh, shame you for hitting. You know, you get kids policing each other. Yeah. She hit me. <laughs> I mean, I there's a story of me as a toddler that I bit someone. And oh, my God, the world caved in. Nicole had bit someone. All of a sudden, I was this evil, bad, wild, uncontrollable, bad, wrong thing, you know. And <laughs> yeah. 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 But wow, you know, what if the biting was actually sign language and, and lived experience to whatever the, whoever I bit, you know, to maybe curtail their own behavior? Yeah. You, you, how do you know? I mean, it, mm -hmm. it was inspired, I assume. Yeah. <clears throat> I pushed my sister down the stairs when I was about, I think I was like about four or five or something. Mm. Yeah, I remember that. That was interesting. She's probably listening to this. Probably doesn't really. Well, maybe she'll probably remember it. That was a long ways down. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> and imagine being a parent in that situation, if a parent was around, like, who hadn't, who had, you know, maybe, maybe even semi-subconsciously recognized that they hadn't, like, let you guys work things out in, in the past or that, I don't know, like, it's just everything, everything's cause and effect. And when we interfere with maybe what naturally arising cause and effect, maybe we just put off the pain and sit and have it all come down on us later. 
But it doesn't even matter. <laughs> none, <laughs> none of it really matters. It's just like, just be. Yeah. Just be your wild self. And yeah, you're going to trigger people. Yeah. So what? Yeah. Yeah. Being able to accept that, even when I'm, even when I feel so aligned and attuned and so enthusiastic about what I'm saying or doing, there might be someone who gets triggered by that and kicks back to me and does tell me, like, who do you think you are? You're this, you're that, you know, and it's bad. And, and if I can't be like, wow, I wonder, I wonder why you're saying or doing that. And, and is there something that I have to apologize for, acknowledge or appreciate? <laughs> you know, um, I don't know why, but a memory of you just came up. Uh, you invited me out to that uh, uh, eco house. What is it called? The Earthship. Yeah, the Earthship. And yeah. uh, I remember you changing your cup, just stopping while we were walking down the down the uh, uh, field. And you're like, oh, give me a second. Change your cup, clean it out, put it back in. We <laughs> kept walking. My menstrual cup. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is a really beautiful example. I didn't even remember that. But this is an example of, like, another thing, right? Everything around sexuality and bodily functions, reproductive systems is just taboo off topic. And what that means, what can, you know, can you imagine what that means for women's wounds? And, and, and the, yeah, I'm going along, I can tell from my, my ability to sense into my cervix that my cup's gonna, there's gonna be a murder scene, a murder looking <laughs> scene if I don't do what I need to do and just be like, I don't need to be ashamed of that. It's a bodily function that I have, and it's actually friggin' amazing. So yeah, <laughs> pop off, switch it out, pour it on the earth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it didn't trigger me. It was just uh, highly unusual. Yeah. And surprising, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. You know. It, you got to know my life. There's people who do weird stuff around me all the time. I'm pretty open. <laughs> I'm glad I fit right in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I invite weirdness. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. So I have one more question. Um, this might be the devil's advocate type of question. Have you watched um, The Joker, the new one? I have, yeah. It's one of the few movies I've seen, actually, in the last few years. <laughs> so when we talk about the wild self and wild freedom, I mean, The Joker is really kind of, you know, it's the perfect movie to go watch if you want to see what wild freedom's about. Mm -hmm. The Joker is on an extreme end of the wild freedom. Yeah. What do you think? Like, how we talk about giving people, you know, permission to be who they are, what happens when you know, who they are is the Joker. Mm. Right? I mean, and, and yet the Joker existed in this wider context, right, of abuse and mm -hmm. shitty luck, um, you know, if you believe in luck. Um, yeah, this, to me, the Joker is an example of 
of like trauma upon trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And, and the whole point of it was that he was conditioned to laugh, to laugh instead of to cry or to rage in a safe, contained way. And that just, sent, it looks to me anyway, like it just built up and built up and built up. And it all kind of like went crazy when, you know, the social service, the one person he had to talk to in the world was taken away. And and then all he had was this, he had, you know, I mean, this kind of like, I talk about perfection, like this perfectly imperfect um like blaze of glory to kind of go out in where where he he had an impact that maybe instead of saying yes people love each other and care for each other it said people like reconsider everything because there is there is darkness and if we don't see to it this is what can happen yeah it's interesting how uh how our perception is a little bit different on the movie that's pretty cool let me hear yours. Yeah, so I see, like, he was under the care of this this woman and a society, and he was taking all these pills to, to, to suppress his wildness, to, to suppress who he really is. And he come to realize at, at the end of their meeting through synchronistic events that she really never listened to him, that mm. she was just part of the environment that was trying to suppress his true self and i totally agree with you i yeah. i agree that's part of my my take on it and and i think one of the things that that illustrates is that one person can't be a village like like one person even not really listening is is like so inadequate to what the needs of an individual are and he had all this backlog of needs from a childhood where his, I mean, his response to being chained up to a, what was it, a, a furnace-y kind of thing and taunted by his mother's boyfriend. Mm -hmm. um, he was being, he was told to laugh and that he was always happy and that's what he needed to be. So he's got this backlog of nobody listens, nobody listens, nobody listens, nobody listens. And who knows if she was really listening or not? Who knows if she could have even heard what he was really saying because she just had no idea what all there was backlogged in there. And, and as a male too in society, I mean, he was clearly conditioned even more deeply than, than Western civilization men to not cry. Uh, and I think that really speaks to like the wounded men among us who, who just, are yeah keeping on this mask of everything's fine everything's happy and and we see from the statistics that those are the men who are who are suiciding and um deep in addiction uh finding yourself out of such a place without going yeah off that wild dark end uh that's oh god i know what it took for me to come back from that you know, while dark, I can take my own life because that's that's where I'm going to put my power and it's what I can do to end this pain. Um, mm -hmm. To to pull myself back from there was was excruciatingly painful, difficult work. Well, I think the brilliant thing you did though was you went there because yeah. had, you, had you not gone there, you wouldn't be where you are today. 
oh, and you know what? That's where this paradox just shows up so glaringly, like, massive. Yeah. I don't think I had a choice. I was out of options. Like him, no one would listen. No one, I didn't think anyone was hearing me. I mean, I had one person, and she, I mean, she was probably my savior, my saving grace. I had one place to go where I could be me. I was out of options, and the only thing I could do was break down. And I had to break, I had to let myself break down. I had to stop holding and let go and let those emotions come friggin' like flailing out. One of the interesting things you just said that kind of piqued my interest was you said you had no place to go to be me. Mm-hmm. Like you needed permission outside of yourself to be you. And you had to find somewhere safe. Yeah, all of that, all of that suppression that I'd experienced in my yeah. formative years saying, no, you don't get to be you. You can't be you. You won't be accepted unless you change who you are to please those around you, that's survival. That's what's required of you. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I just had to, I, I mean, I guess in a weird way, maybe I got enough unconditional love. I talked about my dad earlier. He was definitely someone who was like, you know what, no matter what you do, no matter what you mess up, you're loved. And I think I had en- enough of that influence too, and gave me enough space inside myself to still even just know that emotions could be let out and maybe that was like ultimately the core of my saving grace um that i'd had experiences in the past of breaking and and expressing and grieving and mourning and then feeling that relief and that openness and that return to my own power um that made it possible for me to have an inkling that maybe breaking down would work and could be safe yeah, and, and that I could survive it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I've watched some of your uh, Facebook live posts over the years since we've met, and and it's, I mean, some of the posts are so vulnerable, and it's taken a lot of courage I could see on your end mm. to be in the space that you're in live and having everyone see you in your deep emotion. Yeah, and uh, you know, that nice thing about that was you came to a place where you didn't have to go somewhere to be you. Yeah. 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 I made my own, my own body safe to be in. Yeah. Yeah. And then started, started creating environment in which I could be safe. You know, when I left my bedroom, when I went upstairs, when I went into my living room and that's what awakening house, temporary permaculture ashram was all about the home I live in. Yeah, yeah. So do you find yourself able to uh, be yourself everywhere you go now? I don't think so. I think that, you know, when I'm out and about and surrounded by strangers, I mean, it's not that I'm not being myself. Um, that our, our wider culture, our society, I don't know if you can really call it a culture because there's so, la- so much lack of culture, um, it, it isn't really a place that welcomes a lot of adversity or diversity (laughs) it sees diversity as dangerous especially in a very conservative part of the world like alberta is um i feel super lucky because i've 
really turn toward places and people where radical self-expression is celebrated and, and appreciated and encouraged. Uh, those places have also become places where the people there are noticing um, the dangers and the, the kind of pitfalls of allowing people um, expression and freedom, um, especially because it's so brand new to many of us that we don't always know how to handle it, um, especially when it comes to relating with others, you know, and honoring honoring others and uh, making sure that they're feeling free and empowered while I'm feeling free and empowered. I, I've come across people who can't even imagine a world where people are getting all of their sexual needs met. This person's response was, so that sounds like a world full of rape. I'm like, wow, do you really think that someone raping is getting their sexual needs met? Isn't, isn't it more than just getting off? <laughs> and certainly the person being raped isn't having their sexual needs met. They need to be raped. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't even imagine that, that, that a world of sexual freedom would be a world in which people felt safe and alive and enthusiastic and joyful. Yeah, it's definitely happening, and uh, a lot of stuff is underground and being yeah. held behind doors. But this podcast yeah. is all about freedom, expression, yeah. and uh, what did you say, radical expression? Yeah, radical self-expression. Yes. Radi- and, and radical se- self-reliance and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go, they have to go together. I remember um, Gabrielle Roth, who kind of invented or or brought um, five rhythms ecstatic dance to the world says um, do you have the self-discipline to be a free spirit sounds like a paradox but wow mm-hmm. i think you're sounds like sounds like you're coming up against those paradoxes yourself quite a lot hey oh yeah all the time yeah it's beautiful yeah. i love them yeah what's important in your life like what's your big passion right now uh, well, you know, apart from on the like microcosmic level of like just being exactly who I am and healing like deep more more and more deeply in like through those last layers, hopefully, <laughs> I don't know if you ever stop, but uh, for now, I'm not going to stop because there seems to always be more to come up and heal um, on that microcosmic level. That is important to me. On, the, on where I interface with the world, what's important to me is, is to share this, this dream that I, like I say at the very beginning of that talk, I'm either blessed or cursed to have it, um, but either way, I'm just, I have it, and I'm going to do my best to make that a thing that's of benefit to others. I, I, I can see in my mind's eye a rewilded world full of rewilded humans and we have this way of interfacing with the rest of nature that's that's seamless that we're not like paving things and boxing things off and stuffing things down and and demonizing like just creation or or aspects of creation and separating pieces of ourselves and our worlds into good bad right wrong so that's sharing that vision um, and, and helping other people see their own visions. Those, those things are really important to me. Um, 
I hope that it's inspiring. I hope that we can just have more inspiration in the world through that. And then also, I, I love connecting people. When I think about, you know, what you're doing down Leftbridge Way and what other people are doing um, near and far and just connecting more people together who who are kind of in this way of, of healing and, and learning and collaborating and sharing and learning new ways of living that don't that don't cause so much waste and that the waste that is inevitable um, going back to the crapping big that I talk about in the talk that we can take the waste and, and turn it into fertilizer or turn it into something new um, upcycling and salvaging our our passions of mine and I think we can do that on all kinds of levels uh, material and non-material and 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 build our way to these villages that I imagine I imagine this I was helped to imagine this by a friend of mine Hugo who wrote a book called seeds and he describes in his book it's kind of futuristic dystopian utopic kind of contrast where up here in Canada we've turned into the United Canadian communities that's what this kind of land or geography has been renamed the people upon it have named themselves the United Canadian communities and it's just this vast network of eco villages and there are very few very distinct rules one is that nature comes first stewarding the land is absolutely essential the other is that each eco village governs itself and has its own culture and then the third is that once kids have grown up they get to choose where they go they they aren't obliged to stay put actually i'm not even 100 sure that's in the book i might have added that in my own vision expansion kind of tendencies that i have so sorry hugo if i'm misrepresenting your writing yeah so just sharing those visions connecting people working with them to empower more sharing more wise use of resources and uh yeah evaluating things so that 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 inner critic can just become this like really helpful tool to help us level up rather than something that keeps us down. Well, that's quite a bit of passion and um, it feels like a really steep hill to climb. Yeah. So I have to Sorry, go ahead. We're up against it, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm so stoked that you asked me to be on your podcast and that I've had a chance to talk through some of the holes that were in my TEDx talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're such a wonder, uh, wonderful person to interview and talk to. Not even interview. I don't know why I said interview because I don't really interview people. I just, yeah. I just kind of flow with what's happening, flow with the conversation. Yeah. And Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so tell everybody where you are. Um, like generally? No, where no, where you physically are right now. Where you, physically? Doing this podcast. I'm, I'm sitting in my older model Chevrolet van with a cracked windshield that's uh, held together with all kinds of duct tape and bolts um, in a parking lot of Valley Village where my daughters are treasure hunting right now in sunny, beautiful Calgary, Alberta. Um and what else do you want to know about that? <laughs> no, that's pretty cool. So um, if people want to get a hold of you um, to 
explore some opportunities to find their wild self. I'm, I'm sure that um, you are doing some coaching. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I am. There might be a way for people to get a hold of you. How can they do that? Well, if people aren't 100% already enthusiastically convinced that that um, they heard or found out enough about me to, to be like wanting to jump in right away, they can check me out on uh, Facebook. My profile on Facebook is Nicole Hartley Bradford, and it's pretty open. There's not a lot that I post that's just for friends. Um, I can also check out my Patreon account. I have a, pa- a Patreon platform I'm sharing from in order to build up some income streams. I really love the idea of a whole bunch of people giving me a little bit every month in order that I can have a basic income that keeps me free to to just offer my work in the in a, in the spirit of the gift. So um, they can check me out there. Uh, they can get in touch with me through Messenger on Facebook. Ask any questions. Um, what I'd love, love, love most for people to do is get together with some friends, maybe watch the TEDx and then listen to the podcast with them and then get a few people in on uh, having me come and facilitate um, the, the little process I have for groups to gain um, skills and trust among groups um, that are already connected so that they can deepen into more sharing and more safe space. Thanks, Nicole. This podcast is ExpansionCast. Thank you for listening.